All right, 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. When we left David in chapter 6, things were about as bad as they could get. Uh, David's city is burned to the ground and everyone he loves is captured. And and because of their own losses, David's men are are talking about stoning them. This is your fault, David. You led us astray and this mess is because of you. But we saw that when David hit, hit rock bottom, he began his journey out of that dead end by turning back to the Lord. And so as David continues to repent and seek the Lord, a heart that was about to be extinguished finds recovery. So 1 Samuel 30, we begin in verse 7. It says, And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray you, bring me hither the ephod. And so Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David, and David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he, the Lord, answered him, saying, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Remember, the Amalekites had come while David was up marching with the Philistines to go fight against his own people. And the Amalekites had come during that time. They invaded Ziglag, among many other areas, burned Ziglag to the ground, and took all the families that were staying behind, took them captive. And so when David and his men, you know, are sent away from the battlefield because the other Philistine lords don't trust him, that uh, this is what they find. And so when David encouraged himself in the Lord, when the men are talking about stoning him, he encouraged himself in the Lord his God, and immediately, verse 7, he says to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray you, bring me hither the ephod. The the phrase, I I pray, it means please. In other words, things are bad and time is of the essence. I I prefer not to be on the end of a a bunch of rocks. And so he says, bring me the ephod. I want to ask God a question. The ephod was the high priest's, uh, one of his garments that he would wear. And inside were these, 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 this like fold. Like if you ever have one of those, you know, um, like uh, coats or whatever, and it's got like the middle place for your hands, you know, keep them warm. It kind of had these big pockets. And inside were something called the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know exactly what they were. But through that, the high priest could ask God questions and get answers. So he's saying, I, I, I want to ask God a question. Bring the ephod. You know, I love this because David doesn't just presume that he can, you know, fix things any way he wants. He goes to the high priest, you know, as God commanded in the law to find out what the Lord wanted him to do. And, you know, what a contrast with Saul when things got as bad as they could get. When things got as bad as they could get for Saul, he gave up when he got desperate and he turned to a medium instead of repenting and turning to the Lord. David here, he doesn't just turn back to the Lord, he does things God's way. He turns to God's ordained method of communicating with his people. You know, and, and, and David, as he's returning to the Lord, he's repenting. He's not going to walk his own way anymore. Obedience is always going to be the byproduct of a heart that's turning back to God. Now notice I didn't say perfection is going to be the byproduct. I said obedience is going to be the byproduct. Obedience doesn't mean perfection, even though perfection is God's standard, right? Obedience is a resolution to do things the way God commands in his word. It means that we set out to do what God says. And so David, verse 8, inquired of the Lord. And he asked the question, shall I pursue this troop, this raiding party that has captured our families? 
And shall I overtake them? In other words, you know, will I? Uh, this second part, we're not sure what David's saying. David could either be asking, the phrase overtake means shall I catch up to them? So David could be asking, if, if I leave, will I be able to catch them? You know, is this, a, is this a, a, you know, a mission that has no hope of success? You know, or he could be saying, Lord, do you want me to go catch them? Uh, but either question that David's asking, whichever one it is, it shows a deep commitment uh, to doing things God's way. Because I can't imagine any normal person not trying to rescue their family, even when you think your chances of success are small. You know, I'm, I'm sure David wasn't probably thinking, ah, you know, the, the football game's on in an hour. You know, Lord, can we catch him? Oh, I guess not, you know. I can't imagine that's David's thought process here. Surely, I mean, if there is any hope at all, he's going he's gonna to go. So, so whatever the question he's asking, the idea is he's saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What's your will in this situation? What do you say? You know, David, who has been leaning on his own understanding for quite some time, is trying to stay as far away from that as possible now. He doesn't want to do that anymore, even though every instinct has to be screaming, go get your families back, right? And yet he wants to do it God's way. And so he asked the Lord, and the Lord answered him, pursue, which is in the imperative in the Hebrew, which means you, you got to go, man. You must set off. You must chase them down. This is interesting because this isn't God's permission. David isn't saying, Lord, can I go chase them? And God goes, sure. No, no, no. This is God's command. This is God's will for David and his men. And it came with a beautifully undeserved promise. For you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. The word recover means to save them from danger. You shall overtake and you shall recover, save them from danger. Both the words overtake and recover are doubled in the Hebrew, which means it's an emphasis. It's why the King James writes it, surely overtake them and without fail recover all. It's just, you, you know, you shall overtake, overtake them and you shall recover, recover all. That's what the Hebrew says. And the idea is God's making it sure. You will absolutely catch up with them and you will completely rescue them all from danger. Now, after what David and his men have done for the last 16 months, did they deserve such an awesome promise from God? No. This is grace through and through. But grace is the only path to recovery. It's the only path to recovery. Sin and its consequences can't be overcome or healed by earning my way back to God's blessings. It doesn't work that way. Doing things my own way and in my own strength is what sent me to rock bottom in the first place. There are no resources in myself. Paul the Apostle found the, the same problem when he tried to do things his way. In Romans 7, verse 18, Paul, when describing his frustrations with himself, he says here in Romans seven eighteen, for I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. I don't have any resources. There's not even small resources to pull from. I can't even do small things, you know? He, he didn't say, well, there's only a few good things, you know? You know, so I can do marriage on my own, or I, I can do, you know, child rearing on my own, or I can do, you know, being a Christian in the work environment on my own. No, he said, in me, in my flesh, that is, there dwells no good thing. For to will, the desire is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I can't find it. I searched. It's just not there. No resources here. And so Paul in Romans 7, 21, he says, I find then a law, a rule, a principle, 
<laughs> that when I want to do good, evil is present with me. Isn't that the problem? I want to do good, but evil's still present with me. You see, recovery is a supernatural thing. It's a work of grace. You know, the enemy, when, when we're, we're trying to turn back to the Lord, we're trying to start doing things God's way, you know, what does he begin to say? <clears throat> oh, well, God can't work in your life. You know, this has happened and this has happened, and so he can't bless you now, right? That, that's his tactic. And so then we, we get back on this works treadmill. We're going, okay, well, I need God to bless me, so I got to get it right. And we start huffing and puffing, and then we land on our face again. Because the whole reason we were in that spot was because we were trying to do it on our own. <clears throat> Recovery doesn't work that way. It's a supernatural thing. It's a work of grace. And our God is eager to do it in us if we'll humble ourselves and, and we'll receive that grace. And so thankfully, David does. He says, okay, God will go. So verse nine, David went. I love that. <laughs> David didn't know where his loved ones were, but they had the marching orders to go, and so he did. They just went. And you know, when you're confronted with unknowns in life, find clear and easy commands from God to follow and then set out to do them. When, when I feel that overwhelming thing of I don't know what to do, it is time to dial back to a simpli simplicity. Just get as simple as possible. What do I know? All right, well, I know today God wants me to love my wife. I know today God wants me to love my kids and invest into their lives. I know I've got a job to go to. I need to be there at a certain time. I, I need to get in the Word because I've got a few meetings with people, and they don't need more of me, especially today. They need Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible, you know? You just make it simple. You say, but what about this big thing over here? Don't know yet, so I'm not, I'm, it's going to stay right there. Because the God who, you know, has good intentions towards me, he'll make his plan known when it's time to go. Right now, I'm going to rest on what I know to be absolutely true. I know he loves me. I know he'll provide for my needs. I know he says that if I lack wisdom and ask, he'll give it to me. I've already asked, so now it's time to wait. There's no use stressing on that or trying to figure out all the things that we can't know. When you are confronted with unknowns in life, find clear and easy commands from God to follow and then set out to do them. So that's what David did. So David went, he and the 600 men that were with him, and they came to the brook Besor where those that were left behind stayed. We're gonna find out in a second. What do you mean left behind? But David pursued he and 400 men for 200 men abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Besor. Besor is a wadi about 15 miles south of Ziglag. So, I mean, they've already been marching for a bit when this new crisis kind of comes up. The word there for faint means to be in an extreme state of exhaustion. Um, when I uh, had my, my uh, health problems a couple years ago, one of the things my doctor said is, well, it, what happens is your body gets, it gets stuck in the spot, and so you need to kind of have a, a spike, a big rush of just, you know, you need to, Bursts, slow bursts of exercise, uh, quick bursts of exercise. And so, you know, I hadn't exercised in how many years? You know, and so I got, I'm okay, I'm gonna do that, you know? And, and the first couple of days I'd come home and I'd feel like I was just, I was done, you know? Or I would get to the last leg of the, I'd walk for a bit and then I'd sprint for a bit and then I'd walk for a bit and I'd get to the last leg and I would be like, man, the world's spinning. <laughs> when you get to this place where you've, you've overdone it, where you, you didn't pace yourself correctly or it's just you've gone so far that the energy's gone, you know, you get to this place where, you know, you get the lightheadedness, there's no energy, and you, you start to falter. 
And so David's men, if you remember, they have already marched all the way north to fight with the Philistines, only to have to leave at the crack of dawn to march all the way back. And then when you add in that they were weeping until they had no strength left to cry when they returned to their torched homes, some of these guys are just done. There's no more gas in the tank. And so lest we become critical of those who stayed behind as not caring as much about their families as other men, we need to recognize that's not the case here. Exhausted men means that the rest of the force has to move at the pace of the exhausted men. And so this wasn't their decision to stay behind. The the Bible says they were left behind. We will learn in verse 24 that David and his men left them with a ton of of the supplies because that was also slowing them down. So David made a tactical decision to leave them behind so they would not be slowed down in this pursuit. Well, being able to main, you know, regain their pace again, they finally catch their first sign of where the Amalekites had headed. Look at verse 11. And they found an Egyptian in the field, and they brought him to David, and gave him bread, and he did eat, and they made him drink water, and they gave him a piece of a, a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. So this guy, when they found him, uh, the word here, field, Uh, just means the open country. I mean, remember, they're kind of in desert territory. So after they leave the wadi, um, they come out into just the open plateau that's there, and and they find this guy. He's he's half dead, or mostly dead. And uh, those of you who've seen The Princess Bride will understand that, and I know why you're chuckling was not intentional. So, it's mostly dead, which means he's partially alive. And they found an Egyptian in the field. They bring him to David because they had to bring him because he's in bad shape. He couldn't walk. And and they feed him. You know, they they give him some food. And then his spirit came again, which means he came to himself again. He was was not, um, it's not that he was unconscious. He wasn't wasn't, uh, cognizant. He was so delirious because of his condition, couldn't, couldn't communicate. And so, you know, once he gets to a place where he's, okay, he's himself again, he can communicate. David says to him, verse 13, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me because three days agone I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites and the, upon the coast which belongs to Judah and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziglag with fire. So David knows he's, he's struck gold here. Um, this guy explains that his master abandoned him because he, would, he was sick. Um, you know, the word here, it's not a term that means he was deathly sick. It just means he wasn't feeling good and he was weak or faint. So why would his master abandon his property over something so small? Well, they couldn't afford to slow down either. They just invaded. The word there, invade, means to raid for the purpose of plunder. They weren't trying to defeat anyone, you know, permanently. They're just trying to take stuff. These are these quick lightning raids, and then you you leave with all the stuff and the plunder. And so they had invaded all these regions in the, the south, the Negev, the desert lands in the south of Israel, and, uh, and, and it was a hit and run. And so since this guy couldn't run, they left him behind. Now, the Amalekites hated Israel with a passion. They were Israel's permanent enemy. There was ne- God said, I don't want you to ever making a treaty with the Amalekites because they, they, will, never, they will never treat you uh, fairly or right or correctly. They were, they were under God's ban. They were to be exterminated. And so uh, the Amalekites, they just hated Israel with a passion. 
Uh, and so when we look at these targets, these different places that are mentioned here that the Egyptian slaves said that they hit, these are all Israeli cities uh, with one exception. And of course, Ziglag was an, a city full of Israelites too. And you know, that's very interesting because it shows you that you can run away from your problems, but the real enemy is going to be anywhere you go. Because the real enemy is your flesh, <laughs> right? You can run away from your problems, but the real enemy is going to be wherever you go, your flesh. In Galatians 5.17, it, it, it makes that powerful statement to us about this war that goes on inside of us. It says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means the flesh craves, desires things that are against or opposed, opposite to what the Holy Spirit desires for us. And the spirit against the flesh. The spirit desires and craves things that's opposite and opposed to what our flesh craves. And so Paul says, these are contrary the one to another so that you cannot do the things that you want. Remember the, the problem Paul described? Here's the, here's the reason. You know, the Holy Spirit is living inside of me saying, hey, obey the Lord, do what the Lord says. My flesh is going, no, <laughs> do this, you know? And so we've got this tug of war going on inside of us. Uh, and so it doesn't matter where I go, if I change my circumstances, the flesh is still there. So the, the flesh isn't going to look at a change of surrounding and say, bummer, I can't work with this. I guess I'm done. I guess I'm defeated, you know? You moved from here to Florida. Oh, well. No, I mean, it's still there with you. Now, in the Bible, the Amalekites are always a picture of our flesh because my flesh hates the things of God. It's constantly at war with God's ways. And because of that, it will find me out no matter where I go. So the only safe place for me is in the will of God, doing things God's way. In Galatians 5.18, that's exactly what it tells us. What do you do with this conundrum where you, you can't do the things that you want because you got this war going on? It says, but if you be led by the Spirit or of the Spirit, you are not under that law, that, that principle. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, doing things God's way, I can overcome the flesh. I can triumph over it. I can bypass it, kind of like the law of gravity can be bypassed by Bernoulli's principle, you know? It's not that gravity's not there anymore, but you can overcome it, you know? And this, that's what we can do by the Holy Spirit. We can soar. Now, when David hears this from the Egyptian slave, he knows he's on the right track. These are the guys, this, he, he knows, he was with the guys who, who took our families. And so David, in verse 15, he asks him to lead them to the Amalekites. He says, David said to him, can you bring me down to this company? Can you bring me down to this raiding party? And the Egyptian slave, he's, he's had enough. <laughs> he says, swear unto me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master. And I'll, I'll bring you down wherever you want to go. I'll, I'll bring you down to this company, but swear to me that you're not going to send me back where I was and you're not going to kill me. You know, the Amalekites were a nomadic group. They were always on the move. Uh, but they couldn't be on the move permanently. They had to stop and, and have some kind of basis here and there where they'd live for a bit before they moved on again. And so we don't see David's oath, but we know he makes it because in verse 16, the Egyptian kid is taking him down. Verse 16, and when he had brought him down, when he, the Egyptian slave, brought David down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. 
David, when he finally finds these guys, he says, behold, check this out. (laughs) They're partying. They thought they'd never see their loved ones again, but he goes, here they are. These guys are, and they're not even looking for a fight. They're partying. They're thinking everything's fine. So even though there's only 600 of us or 400 of us, we can take them. And you know, if you travel to Israel today, when it talks about them being spread abroad, you can still see these Bedouin cities today. They spread out their belongings in the deserted areas, not the populated areas, because if they, the idea is if they're on the move, you never have to pay taxes because you don't have an address to send, send the tax payment to. So they're constantly on the move. And so they spread out their belongings in these deserted areas. They'll live there for a little while, and then they'll move on. So this is what he's seeing over here. They're just all spread out. I can't imagine it was easy seeing these folks throwing a party knowing your loved ones are all down there. So David doesn't waste any time in attacking. Verse 17, and David smote them from the twilight even until the evening of the next day. David attacked just before darkness hit in twilight. That's not the ideal time for a battle. But this wasn't a fight about tactics. This was about rescuing their families before they could be sold as slaves or worse. And so David attacked right there in the twilight. They fight all the way through the night, all the way unto the evening of the next day, and David and his men are victorious. It says there escaped not a man of them except for 400 young men which rode upon camels and fled. Now, that there are 400 guys that got away means there was a lot more who who were beaten up, you know, that were were killed in the battle. Because David only had 400 men. David's outnumbered here. This is not an easy fight. This is not something that David just rushes in, you know, and it's all, you know, the Amalekites just, you know, die, and then, yeah, we got our families back, you know. No, this is a long, protracted battle through the night, all through the day. They're already exhausted. While they were victorious, it was not easy. The Amalekites fought hard to hold on to their plunder. Let me tell you, your flesh will fight hard to hold on to the habits you have, the ways of thinking you have. And the Amalekites held out for an entire day. But when David's men finally turned the tide, a small group fled, which means they left everything behind. Verse 18, and David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And David took all the flocks and the herds which they, the Amalekites, drove before those other cattle. In other words, before the cattle they had stolen from David's men and his families, they had stuff of their own. And so David took that too, and he said, this is David's spoil. We'll learn the significance of that later. But everyone was safe. Everyone was out of danger against all hope. Just as God promised to David, just as God told David, everything was recovered. You know, sometimes God's promises seem impossible to us. But God never fails. His promises never fail. We read about it in Psalm 9, which, you know, is a psalm that David wrote. And there were many occasions in David's life where God did what seemed impossible. In Psalm 9, I want to read the first two verses, and then I want to skip down to verse 9 and 10. But in verses 1 and 2, the Lord said, or David says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. 
What does it mean to praise the Lord with your whole heart? I mean, sometimes I think it means really, really praise him, you know? <laughs> you know? I'm doing it with my whole heart. I'm all in, you know? And, and, and maybe that's there, but the idea of the whole heart um, is similar to what we, we sang in the song, You Gave Us Your Whole Heart. It's the idea that it was a full dedication. You know, David wasn't praising the Lord with 75% of his heart, and the other 25% was cursing the Lord and going, yeah, I don't, I don't think you, you got the right idea here, you know? You know, it wasn't like when you go to the buffet or, you know, or the cafeteria. Yeah, anybody remember Morrison's? I think they're gone now, but, you know, and you would go through the line and they, you know, what would you, oh, I'll have some of that. You know, no, 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 thanks, none of that, you know, no. Keep the green bean casserole to yourself, please, you know. But you, you would take different bits and pieces, but, but Christianity doesn't work that way. It's like, well, I'll have some of Psalm, you know, 13, but I really don't want any of Psalm 16, man, that's heavy. David, when he says, I'm gonna praise you, with, O Lord, with my whole heart, the idea is, Lord, I'm, I'm all in. Whatever you say, that's, I'm gonna follow you, you know? I, I'm, I'm gonna praise you, I'm gonna talk of your greatness, I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, speak of, of your goodness, of how awesome you are in every way. You know, that, that when you say this, well, that's the best way to do it. I will show forth all your marvelous works. In other words, I'm gonna tell everyone all the awesome things you do. And I will be glad and rejoice in you. Mm. You know, it is easy at times to look at the challenges you're facing in life or just your own hurts, your own pains, and just be like, I, got, I have nothing to be happy about. I've got nothing to smile about. <laughs> I remember it was like five or six years ago, and my doctor told me, I said, Will, you, you, you got issues, and you need to change how you're living. And it, was, it needed to be drastic. And so I, I had to change my diet very drastically, and I was miserable. I was so grumpy about it. I was so angry. You know, my, my dinner would come, and I'd just sit there. And, and I remember Bev came to me. I just, you know, and never going to enjoy eating again. And I remember Bev came to me, and she sat down at the dinner table next to me, and she said, you know, I don't think the Lord designed you to, to us to, to not be able to enjoy food. And then she just left it at that, walked off. Crazy woman. <laughs> Can't drop a bomb like that and walk off. You gotta give me an opportunity to retaliate. I sat there and I thought, Lord, I don't wanna do that. I don't like this, this is awful. I mean, I'd rather be dead. And I remember later that night, I went in the room because my heart was heavy and I knew I was off. And I was talking to the Lord, and I remember the Lord said, well, you, you'd rather miss out on your grandkids and all the things I want to do in your life for pizza? For cotton candy? Is that really how you're thinking? And that was the beginning of change, you know, to be able to say, okay, no, I don't like the kale, but... I can rejoice in the Lord. 
I can be glad and rejoice in him. I've got a relationship with him. He loves me. He's washed away all my sin. There's plenty for me to smile about, no matter whether the food I'm eating is particularly pleasing or not. There's plenty to be thankful for. There's plenty to rejoice in, no matter what else is going on. And so David, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O thou most high. You're the, you're the best thing I've ever had. I can sing. I can tell how awesome you are. And then he talks about you know, how things have been rough because of the enemies in his life, and yet he comes back to how the Lord is bigger than that. And so in verse 9 he says, the Lord will also be a refuge to the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. A refuge is a safe place, you know, a harbor, a place you can go that you don't have to be afraid And they that know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken them that seek you. David knew that, learned, he had learned by this point in his life that running to the Lord to seek him about what to do, to do things his way, to trust in him, because he knew God's character was trustworthy, his name. He knew that was the safe place to be. And so, even though sometimes God's promises seem impossible to us, he never fails. He knew that God would come through for him. And the cool part is, sometimes when we trust him, God exceeds what he promises to do just because he's that good. Just because he's that good. And so, not only do David and his men get their families back, but they get all the spoil that the Amalekites got, all their stuff. And so, while this is a great victory, beautiful grace of God in their lives, they're not out of the woods yet. Remember, David and his men, they have been away from the Lord for a long time. And what we're going to see in verse 21 is that some of David's men had never really even walked with the Lord. And so this group of men caused a new crisis when they returned to the group of men who were too exhausted to continue the chase. Look at verse 21. And David came to the 200 men which were so faint that they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Besor. And so they went out to meet David. When they saw David coming, they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him, to go see their families. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. But then answered all of the wicked men and men of Belial of those that went with David and said, because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil that we have recovered, save to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Can't be with us anymore. So David's not out of the woods yet. I love how he starts this off. He comes and the men who have been waiting see him. They run out to meet their families. And David's first question is, it says, he, he saluted them, which means to ask them of their shalom. That's what the word means. To ask them of their peace. How, how were they doing? Is everything safe here? God did an amazing thing back here. What about you guys? You doing all right? How is everything? You know? run into any trouble. David's immediate concern was for their well-being, but others did not feel the same way. In verse 22, it says, then answered all the wicked men and the men of Belial 
of those that went with David. Uh, Wicked men here means those who have traits that hinder their relationship with God. You can have things in your life that will hinder your relationship with the Lord. You can. And these guys had it. It also calls them uh, men of Belial. That's probably not a good translation. If you have a King James, you see that men of is in italics because it's not there in the original Hebrew. It just means troublemakers. These guys were troublemakers, you know? It's easy to forget that the men who came to David many years ago, they were not spiritual men, remember? David got all the guys who were in debt or who were running from the law or who were in trouble with the king. These were not exactly, you know, uh, on the, they were not, uh, trust you, they were not up for any awards at the, the Dove Awards, okay? You know? These were not guys that were being invited to the, you know, Christian festivals to come, you know, share what God had done in their lives. Now, during the time, the, the decade or so that David had been with them, uh, David had impacted many of them for the Lord. But remember, David hasn't been walking with the Lord for the last two years. So some of these men felt free to vocalize their ungodly opinions. And so they said, we will not give them anything of the spoil except their families. And then they got to go. Now, you need to understand this demand, we will not, or this stand, whatever you say. It needs to be understood in light of the fact that they were on the verge of stoning David just a couple days ago. That anger and mistrust doesn't just disappear. So they're not all hunky-dory like, let's follow David's lead. He's our man. You know, if he can't do it, no one can. No. The issue of where they go from here is still very much unresolved in their mind. And so they make a stand. We will not give them one penny. And you know what? They can't stay with us anymore. Their ultimatum is ugly. We may have fought together through thick and thin for the past decade or so, but it ends here. You didn't fight this time, so you don't get any of your possessions back, and you can't stay with us. So take your family and leave. I do wonder, no. (laughs) Leave to where? Where are they going to go that's different than where you're going? You don't have homes anymore. They were burnt. I mean, is there a plan to go back and rebuild Ziklag and back to serving the Philistines, back to fighting their own people again? I mean, is that what they're thinking? (laughs) And do they expect David to be okay with this ultimatum? Do they even care at this point? David is at a a, a final crossroads here, one that could end in great heartache if he doesn't handle this correctly. See, David needs to lead them at this point, not with a bludgeon, but by graciously reasoning with them. And you know, (laughs) grace is something every single one of these individuals, including David, need after the mess they've made in the last two years. And so David doesn't come heavy-handed. He comes and he leads them through grace. Verse 23, then said David, you shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. I love that he calls them my brethren here. He doesn't say, you knuckleheads, what are you talking about? David still treats them like family, even though they're ready to break up the family. And I love that David reminds them that the, the victory over the Amalekites, their protection during the battle, and the fact that they regained all their family and all their possessions was something they didn't earn. Those were undeserved gifts from God. And therefore, because they're undeserved gifts from God, they don't get to decide who's worthy to move forward from here. All of them don't deserve anything. And David reminds them, 
It was God who did this. He gave it to us. We didn't earn anything. So David leads them through grace. But David also leads them through reasoning with them. Look at verse 24. He says to him, for who will hearken unto you in this matter? David has 600 men. And the group suggesting this harsh action, they were not in the majority. David is saying, do do you really intend to force us all to go along with this? You really intend to create more conflict after all God's done to rescue us from this conflict? David says, no, rather, I've I've got a different plan, a better plan. But, which means rather, as his part is that goes down to the battle, his share of the plunder is that goes down to the battle, so shall his part, his share of the plunder be that stays with the stuff. They shall part alike. They shall get the same share, equal, equal share. And you know, this settled the conflict so successfully that David made this the official policy of the kingdom once he became king. It says in verse 25, and it was so from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. Now, I mentioned earlier in verse uh, 20 when David claimed that extra spoil and said, this is David's spoil. There was a reason David claimed that extra plunder for himself because he wasn't going to keep it. It needed to be returned to the places it had been taken from. Look at verse 26. And when David came to Ziklag, when they returned to their burnt homes, he sent of the spoil unto the elders of Judah, even to his friends, saying, Behold, a present for you of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. I read that verse and it is such a cool moment. It's one of those moments you're like, yeah, David's back, you know? Like, he's back, okay? He's back where he's supposed to be, you know? He's got his head on straight again. He's got his, he's got his vision where it's supposed to be, you know? He's seeing things correctly again, and he's, he's, he's following the Lord's lead. He's being the man that God had called him to be. David's habit prior to this had been been to bring any plunder they found to Achish so he could prove his loyalty to the Philistines. You know, and, and David had done that because he was tired of his own countrymen betraying him. I'm tired, of, you know, this is, he got to a place where I'm tired of it. Everywhere I go, you know, tell Saul where I am, and then Saul comes out and chases me and running for our lives. I'm done with it giving my wife away, doing all these things. I'm tired of being out of control, tired of my own people. They don't care about me. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to go to the Philistines. And this is the life that they had carved out for themselves for 16 months, a COVID year. (laughs) It would be very tempting to do the same thing now. Well, let's just rebuild Ziglag. Can't go home. I mean, everybody hates us there. But David's not walking in that direction anymore. Achish is his enemy. He's literally on the battlefield right at this moment, killing David's countrymen. There could be no return to that. And while it's true that some of David's countrymen did betray him, there were so many more people who helped David when he was on the run from Saul. And you know, if David's going to remain on the road to recovery, it's time to tell all of them thank you instead of continuing to complain that he deserved better because of the few that didn't help him. And so David, he sends the spoil to the elders, the leaders of the tribe of Judah, 
And then it says, even to his friends. The word there, friends, just means fellow countrymen. David remembered who he was. I'm an Israeli. I'm supposed to be with my people. I'm supposed to be serving my people, protecting my people. And my people, my tribe, was exposed because I wasn't there. And all, a, lot, a lot of them lost a lot of their stuff. And so David says, behold, a present for you of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. <laughs> a present means a blessing. I give you a blessing from a victory over God's enemies. And you know, that's what David should have been doing as a fugitive. This is why God told him to stay in the land in the first place. When David went to Moab, God sent a prophet to a foreign country to come and go, what are you doing here? Go back into the land. And when David went back in the land, you know what the first thing that happens? He hears about a tribe, a city, all the way, far away from here where his men, his men are camping out, all the way in the city of Keilah. And he hears about the people in Keilah that they've been attacked by the Philistines and they've laid siege to the city. And David, since Abiathar, the high priest, is with him, he goes, hey, ask the Lord if we should go help them. It's in 1 Samuel 23. You can read about the story there. And the Lord says, yes. That's why I told you to come back to the land. You go help them. So David gathers the men. They said, they said David, we're, it's just 600 of us. It's a massive Philistine campaign. We're going to go fight 600 men. David goes, yep, that's our people. We're going to go set them free. And David does. That's what he was supposed to be doing. And he wasn't supposed to do it because they said, thank you. Because you know what the men of Keilah did afterwards? They betrayed him to Saul. David was supposed to do it because they were his people. It didn't matter whether they betrayed him or not. David was supposed to do it because God called him to be king. And he's supposed to be king of everybody there, whether they like him or not. He's supposed to serve everybody there, whether he likes him or not. Because that's what a servant does. That's what a leader does. So David, he's well on the road to a recovered heart because now he's beginning to bless God's people again instead of thinking God's people need to bless him. Now, David doesn't know what the immediate future holds for him or how long he's gonna, it's gonna be before he's king, but he's decided to start doing what the Lord wants with the time he has left. And so, verse 27, to them which were in Bethel, to them which were in South Ramoth, and to them which were in Jatir, and to them which were in Aroer, and to them which were in Sifmoth, and to them which were in Eshtemoah, and to them which were in Rakal, and to them which were in the cities of the Jeremielites, and to them which were in the cities of the Kenites, and to them which were in Hormah, and to them which were in uh, Chor Hashan, and to them which were in Athak, and to them which were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men, King James says, were wont to haunt, what it means is where they had traveled and gone about. All these cities are cities in the southern part of Israel, in the lands of Judah and Simeon, the two tribes that were there in the south. These were the areas where David and his men had lived while they were on the run from Saul. You know, it's easy to highlight Ziph and Keilah who betrayed David, but the truth is, this is the list of people who helped David, where they didn't give him a hard time for traveling, and this list is way bigger. 
than the two cities that betrayed David. Listen, life is hard sometimes. Life could just be hard in general. But the road to rock bottom, if you want to go that way, if you want some directions to how to get to rock bottom, the road to rock bottom is paved by focusing on all the things that seem unfair or just wrong. That, if you want to get there, that's how you'll get there. Focus on that. That's how you pave that road for yourself. You want to get to rock bottom? Then focus on all the things that are unfair, all the things that hurt, all the ways you've been wronged. Focus on that. On the other hand, the road to recovery, it's always paved by focusing on the things I should be thankful for. Always. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not wrong to complain to the Lord. In fact, that's the best place to bring your complaints. David often would bring his complaints to the Lord. But don't forget to bring your thanksgiving with it. That's where David went wrong. Bring your complaint to the Lord. But right alongside it, bring all the things that you're thankful for. Because more often than not, when we've got a kila or a zif in our life, there's all these other things in our life too. And we can easily lose perspective when all we do is focus on those one or two really bad things that are going on. I want to leave you with Philippians 4 and then the worship band will come up and we'll close out the service tonight. But in Philippians 4, it has a powerful command. 4 verse 4. Philippians 4 verse 4. It says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. You know, it's kind of like, you know, Paul the Apostle is going, hey, here's how you do it. Always rejoice in the Lord. And if you miss something, I'll say it again, rejoice. It's in the imperative, so it probably should be translated, you got to rejoice. You need to rejoice. We have to do this. You know, in all things, we can rejoice, and so we must rejoice because our rejoicing is in the Lord. I don't rejoice because somebody's mad at me or somebody's wronged me or things are unfair or things are hard. I'm not rejoicing in that, but I can rejoice in the Lord. Let your moderation be known unto all men because the Lord is at hand. In other words, live your life in such a way that you're not giving yourself to excess. You're not living for here because the Lord's coming soon. And then here it is, verse six, be careful, King James says. It means be anxious for nothing. Nothing means, it's a real complicated word in the Greek. It means nothing. No thing. Nothing. Be anxious for no thing, Nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And what will this result in when I'm rejoicing in the Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering that Jesus is coming back, I'm, I'm not giving myself that this life is it, when I'm not being anxious and I'm presenting my request to God with thanksgiving, it says the peace of God, which is better than understanding, which passes, surpasses all understanding. If you, you say, I just, wanna, I just wanna know, Lord, if the Lord gave you all understanding of a situation and you knew exactly everything that was going on, the peace you would have, it would not be as great as this. 
Whatever feeling you would have would not be as great as the peace that the Lord can give when he is guarding your heart and mind through his son because you're presenting everything to him with thanksgiving, rejoicing at all times. And so he says, in light of that, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. As someone who has battled depression throughout my life, my wife has been incredibly helpful. One of the things sometimes she'll do with me is she'll say, Will, what's true right now? And sometimes we start simple. My shirt's blue. I'm 46 years old. I have six kids. I have a wife who I think loves me. <laughs> we start with truths. Then we move on to what's pure, what's virtuous. We move on to thoughts that are, are, are true and right and just and all the things that it says I'm supposed to think on. And what happens in that moment is that thing that is getting me down, it's not that it's gone, but it's put in, into proper perspective. And then I can be thankful and I can rejoice. I can not put all my eggs in the basket of here knowing that Jesus is gonna rescue me from this at some point. And with that thanksgiving, I can make my request to God and cry out to him and say, Lord, lift this burden off my shoulders. It's hard. But either way, I will face this with a smile on my face because I can always rejoice in you. Amen? Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the fact that we see David's recovered heart. Lord, he, he doesn't go the way of Saul, which we'll look at next week. He goes a different way, a, day of reco- a way of recovery, a way of healing, a way of growth. So that's what we want in our lives. Lord, we struggle. We're not any different than David. Lord, we, we have times where we backslide, we maybe even backslide for you know, 16 months or even more than that. But Lord, as we see David turning back to you and what that looks like. Well, we, we are so grateful for that because it means even if we backslide, we can return to you. You can recover our hearts. You can put new things in. You can restore the years the locust has eaten. And so, Lord, tonight we recommit ourselves to rejoicing in you, Lord, to resting in you, doing things your way, not leaning on our own understanding. We look to you, Lord, your way of doing things, to be those who seek your face, who think on the things that you've put in the parameters for us. Lord, that you might give us a peace that's better than all understanding. And that our hearts might be, and minds might be guarded, protected by Jesus. Jesus, guard our hearts and our thoughts as we are yielding ourselves to you tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.